I'm recording as well, Thomas. Yeah. How you doing? I'm all right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another one of our Thinking Drinkers podcasts, where we are going to taste uh, two, maybe more drinks, um, and tell you about them uh, with some vague connection to a date this week it's it's a brilliant concept isn't it ben it's fantastic uh, it's tenuous um but you you don't need an excuse to drink uh responsibly but we're going to provide you with at least two uh maybe yeah. maybe three um and apologize uh, apologies to everyone um that this pod is coming to you a day later than normal the reason being is we tried to record it whilst i was on a barge holiday earlier this weekend couldn't do it because there's no uh there was no coverage at all so i'm coming to you live from the barge inn near devices in wiltshire i'm i'm currently stood in their outside barbecue kind of uh area um and i'm i'm nicking their electricity and scabbing their wi-fi but i did eat here last night and had a few pints so um uh, they owe me really but anyway we we moored up here yeah. i'm with my wife and two kids we've we've been four nights on the canal and it's been it's been great the weather's the weather tom has been amazing it's been amazing we've been very lucky you've been lucky you've been very, very lucky. lucky with the weather yeah very mild yeah. um and yeah. uh yes yeah, been been drinking sierra nevada pale ale on the boat nice. not too much because i'm driving um mm glass of wine it's very it's it's conducive to discerning drinking the old barge holidays you can just sip and float i find i find just generally holidays with my children are conducive to drinking um anyway ben i've been at home in hertfordshire um and uh we've been doing normal half-term things like going to the zoo visiting the the british museum to look at the Egyptian stuff because my son's doing Egyptian history and uh, I managed to fit in a bit of a bike ride yesterday. Um, but generally spending time with my children has been conducive to drinking. It's, it's, so, um, yeah, yeah, I just want all holidays, all holidays, really, drinking, <laughs> I mean, drinking days. <laughs> I mean, being being in a uh, basically a floating tin can with your two <laughs> children for four days you tested the boundaries, it the actual boundaries. physical well, I tell you boundaries. what, though, the, um, the more annoying thing when you go on a barge holiday is, well, when we picked up we, when we picked up the boat, there's a newspaper called Towpath Talk, which is the uh, the newspaper. I know it, I know. I've written for it. I've, I've, yeah, I've written for it, Ben. Have you? No, I've well, I'll tell you what, I'm thinking of pitching a feature to them, and it's called <laughs> the feature that the title is going to be in, How to Mind Your Own Fucking Business. Because everyone has advice for you when you're on a boat, like everyone. You'll be floating past me, go morning, and they go, oh, you, you want to you wanna tighten that up, mate? Uh, and literally, there are lock-bothering old men who just stand around offering you needless advice. I've been told how much my boat weighs by six separate individuals in four days. I bet I it think... weighs a lot more with you anyway. <laughs> it does. Taking that into consideration. It does. And also, it, I think it's because I'm going a bit too fast. I've been told to slow down quite a few times. Um, mm. But I'm a lad. Sounds very similar. Similar to the bike situation. Yeah. Um, people telling me to slow down, telling me I'm in the wrong gear. Yeah. Uh, asking me if I'm all right just because I'm stood still enjoying a fucking break. Yeah. Relentless it's, it, honestly, 
Hmm. It's um, so, uh, but but on the whole, everyone's very nice and they are helpful, um, and they do knots for you and stuff like that. But anyway, I'm pleased we have got time to do this. It's quite early in the morning, isn't yeah. it? It's, it's nine it o'clock. It's not really. Well, I, I shan't be drinking any of the drinks we discussed. No. Just full disclosure, that would be uh, a, a problem. Um, things are things are bad, but they're not that bad. Um, and we've already dropped two f bombs, so apologies. Uh, I've just realised we're very sweary, probably because it's first thing in the morning, and I've just been dealing with my children at breakfast and uh, just yeah. I don't think we'll put it, we'll put it. It's, it's a drinking show uh, pod, uh, so it should be over 18s, and we'll put the explicit content badge on it. So you've been warned, guys. And it's not if we're not too bad. We're not going to drop the c bomb, are we? No, uh, it depends how how much you how things go. Um, right. So let's kick. Let's get this thing. Let's uh, kick this puppy in the dick. Let's get going on it. What are we going to yeah. do first? Are you can go first, or shall I? Well, uh, it doesn't really matter um, because obviously <laughs> there's only very vague rules around what you do if you're well, listening to the podcast. So, in terms of chronological order, you would go first. We had lots of options this week, and obviously it's Halloween this week. So we talked yeah. about doing Halloween. Uh, we talked about the birth of Garincha, who was born on the 28th of October um, and was a great Brazilian footballer. But we've lo- talked a lot about Garincha. We talk about him in our show. So if you want to hear also, more about... he did have quite a sad, depressing demise. It was kind of, yes, it was sort of Gascoigne-esque issues uh, with yeah. his with his, uh, with his his life. And he was, he was exploited. So it's a bit of a downer. Um, and with everything else going on in the world, we need something more uplifting, something more inspirational, Tom. We do. So I'm, I'm going for October the 30th, which is going to be Sunday, I believe. October the 30, 30th is the Rumble in the Jungle, 1974, Muhammad Ali versus George Foreman. Now, you might have seen the film When We Were Kings, which was um, it's a great, great sports documentary all about this fight. Um but we looked into it um, a bit further and it's amazing. I didn't realize that in 74, when Muhammad Ali um, was, was going to fight Foreman, um, it had been four years since his comeback after he'd been banned for fighting the Vietnam war. And I didn't realize he, um, having been pretty much indestructible and undefeated in the sixties, he was now in his thirties and his, and his return to the ring had not gone well. Um, because I just or I just assumed that Muhammad Ali whipped everyone's behind all through his career. But um in the run up to this fight, he'd um he'd suffered his first defeat to Joe Frazier in seventy one and he had his jaw broken by Ken Norton. Have you ever heard of Ken Norton? What's mm. his name? Um but Foreman had fought both of those dudes and um he'd made light work of them, knocking both of them out within two rounds. So um, the, uh, the 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 smart money was on Foreman. He was, I mean, Muhammad Ali was a massive un, uh, an underdog, um, uh, and he was basically it was equivalent of walking into a burning building. No one gave him a chance, and and, and Foreman mainly because Foreman had won each and every one of his forty fights, and he'd um, finished all but three within three rounds. Despite being a massive underdog and having given being given no chance by the bookmakers. Ali basically lived in Foreman's head in the run-up to the fight. He started taking the piss out of him about his plodding style, satirising him as the mummy. Uh, 
whereas you know ali was a sort of fleet-footed fighter float like a butterfly sting like bee, all that kind of stuff and he uh further ramped up all the sort of pre-fight rhetoric uh, he was interviewed he had a very famous interview with david frost and he said if you think the world was surprised when nixon resigned wait till i walk performance behind and having been hailed a pair of black rights by the people of zaire ali then deliberately turned uh his african hosts against uh against foreman getting them to sort of whipping up crowds and getting to chant Ali Bomaye, which basically means Ali kill him wherever he went. <laughs> That's a bit extreme. And by the so by the time the bell went for the first round, Foreman was absolutely fuming. And then the first round, first round he got even angry when Ali landed like a series of outrageous right handers onto onto um Foreman's head. By the time the second round started, Foreman was seriously pissed off. And he came out and he, instead of seeing Ali in front of him, he saw that Ali had retreated to the ropes, basically inviting Foreman onto him. Um, and now given Foreman's punching power, this seemed like a suicidal tactic. But Ali, uh, he sort of he covered himself up and clung onto Foreman whenever he could. And he'd throw out the odd counter punch. He survived the round and apparently he was just getting in his head, taunting him throughout. So this was just getting, <laughs> he was just winding up Foreman more and more. But I think the reason, because Ali knew that Al, uh, Foreman hadn't been past three rounds in many of his fights. Well, like like I said earlier, all but three. Uh, and an increasingly enraged Foreman went to work on Ali's head and body for the next four rounds. Um, but having never needed to box much on the third round, he began, he basically got knackered. And the weight of his punches started to wane with every jab. And then in the seventh round, with what is called his rope-a-dope strategy. So it's called rope-a-dope, where you just, you just lean on the rope, absorb all the punches. And by the seventh round, Foreman was all punched out. Foreman landed an unbelievable uppercut. If You can you can see it on YouTube. We'll put it on the, uh, the link. But there's an unbelievable he- uppercut to Ali's jaw. And... It, it would knock anyone else out. And Ali grabbed hold of him after that and whispered in his ear, is that all you got, George? Which basically broke Foreman because um, that it was. <laughs> it's answer, the answer to that question was, yes, that's all I've got. Um, and then the next round, Ali sparked him out with a plum right-hander and he, and he took the heavyweight title of the world, completing what is still, I think, the most remarkable sporting comeback in history. A lot of people talk about Tiger Woods coming back, but that's golf. It's not a real sport, is it? Let's be honest. No, it doesn't really count. No. I, I remember when I the last time we played tennis, um, and I beat you six love, um, and it was a good few years ago now. And I think you are still, still when it was, it was two thousand seven, two thousand and seven. And you've been having some lessons recently. I think you are hoping to proved to be one of the greatest sporting comebacks of all time but yeah. i won't play you anymore because i'm done yeah. just i mean when you yeah. when you win six love that's why federer is... retired yeah. it's no coincidence i had some lessons federer retired so you know <laughs> uh other sporting comebacks can we think of any um, my head? it's always a hard one isn't it just to think of well one of the bit it's mentioned in our book qpr who i support in the uh the only cup they've ever won in 1967. They were 2-0 down with, I think, about half an hour to go. And they won 3-2. And this, the, uh, it was Lazarus mm. scored the scored the winning goal. Lazarus. Lazarus. The man, well, I, I mean, I like... Back. There, are, um, there are other sporting 
sort of uh, mismatches, I suppose. And in fact, Seabiscuit winning the match of the century in 1938 was on the 1st of November. So that fits into this month. And that was a under a real underdog, like under horse story um, yeah. because he was a small sort of dodgy need nag and he took on War Admiral, swift and strong. It's not quite the same as Rumble in the Jungle, but... Um... Yeah, the Rumble in the Jungle is a, a remarkable story and it's been enhanced. Its legacy has been enhanced by the film When We Were Kings, which, again, I say, you've got to watch it, even if you're not into boxing. And also the music documentary that goes alongside it called Soul Power. Mm. Some of the best funk and soul musicians went over to Zaire. And because if the fight was actually delayed, I think Foreman got a like, hurt his hurt his hand, so they put it back by a few weeks. But the concert still went ahead, and it is absolutely brilliant. You've got uh, Muhammad Ali hanging out with James Brown and Bill Withers and loads of legends. And uh, so it's it's the whole it, it, it's it's the cultural context in which it happened post Vietnam. Um, black rights coming through. It was yeah, it's it's fantastic, but. Mm. You watched boxing then, and it was just brutal. I mean, I know you've got the Tyson Fury and um, AJ and all that kind of stuff. It's not the same. It's just no. not the same. No. Well, he was the first one to do the trash talking and to yeah. actually make it a, a wider of wider cultural interest than just two men leathering the shit out of each other, and indeed women now, um, and people who are rather not be aligned to a specific gender, I imagine. Yeah. Anyone who already wants to, <laughs> well, anyone that's who awesome. wants to get in a ring, and just hammer the shit out of each other, uh, they can. And it's pretty brutal. My granddad was a boxer, and uh, so I grew up with Muhammad Ali on the on the wall. As a, yeah, it was it was part of my sort of youth, and he'd teach us how to box when we were kids. Um, and I went to a boxing gym, and uh, and it wasn't for me really, Ben. I just the one thing I don't really like is being punched in the face repeatedly. And I think if you're against that in principle, uh, then it's not a sport for you. Um, I mean, I I, I was going to say that that Sea Biscuit could be equally important as a sporting event, just for the same reasons: the film that was made of it, and uh, the romance, and the time in American history in the 1930s, the Great Depression, and all the rest of it. But then I realised horses are not people so it's not no. really sport um and so it's a bit like motor car racing isn't it really uh it's a man on something rather yeah. than yeah you can't men. take it you can't take much of the credit as a jockey no. really can you no you can take none of it but what are we drinking well are well we drinking? we're drinking we could got, got a couple of options here haven't we because yes I mean, well there's the um there's a cocktail called the uppercut which given if you watch that punch uh from foreman to Ali's jaw, which somehow, and I still don't know how, he doesn't go down from. Um, is that's uh, it's it's quite a well-known cocktail, mm. uh, developed in New York, I believe, by yeah, Ivy Mix. Ivy yes. Mix is a very famous bartender and uh, still working, running the bar called uh, Leylander in um, New York, Brooklyn. If you live in New York, when you're listening to this, we do have some people tuning in from the good big apple over yes. there in us of a and uh if you go to brooklyn's uh, you'll, you'll find her bar it's one tales of the cocktail best bar so it's, it's really is a very good place to go and uh, she has a a drink called the uppercut which we put in our book you can yes. find the recipe in our book if you don't already own it please buy it. it's available in all good bookshops and on amazon and in some charity shops i've noticed in recent weeks <laughs> yeah. so it's popping up all over the place you can't miss it but in there we do an uppercut but we do it with with whiskey 
Uh, actually, when she created it, she created it with Kashasa. And this being the week that uh, we recognised the great Kashasa drinker Garincha as well, that seems highly appropriate if you do use uh, 15 mil of Kashasa instead of whiskey and put a lot of Cointreau in there, which is an orange triple sec liqueur. So flipped the sort of margarita ratios of heavy on the spirit, lighter on the Cointreau, and actually goes heavy on the Cointreau with 45 mil and 15 mil of Cachaca, and then grapefruit juice, lemon juice, and um, some Angostura bitters. And it is a great drink, actually. Uh, so you could try that. Uh, if you didn't want to mix up a cocktail, though, you could have American whiskey, Ben. Given that Muhammad Ali was born in Louisville, Kentucky, we're going to go for some American whiskey as well as a as a, another option. On the rocks, Elijah Craig, particular favourite at the moment. Elijah Craig, like Ali, was a pioneer. He's the first person to age his whiskey in charred oak American barrels. He was a Baptist preacher. It was an act of God. He had a fire at a distillery. Um, it burnt all the barrels, but he put the whiskey in there. And anyway, there was spirit, new make in there anyway. And by the time he took it out, it tasted much better and much more mellow and, and uh, smoother than the whiskey he was making before. And now it's it's a it's a, a key component of 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 American whiskey having that the, the, that charred oak. So and it's all also it's a fighting spirit as well, because um, Elijah Craig distilled whiskey for George Washington, who gave it to his troops, who then opened an almighty can of whoop house on the Brits and secured freedom during the War of Independence. So have a bit of that. Um, mm. I mean, Ali is a difficult person to really raise a glass to because obviously when he converted to Islam, he uh, knocked, knocked any drink on the head. But even before that, I don't think he was a big boozer in any way, shape or form. OK, yeah. Well, we're going to return to Heaven Hill Distillery uh, potentially in a, in a few weeks and do a different one. We're also going to be using Heaven Hill Distillery's whiskies in our members club tasting. What an opportune moment just to mention that. If you're not oh, yes, Tom, what great that. value that is. Such great value. Uh, we send the drinks direct through your door, 360 mil measures of some delicious discerning drinks, and then you taste them with us once a month. So we'll be using that. So we can return to those guys and give them a bit more uh, a bit more exposure, a bit more love, uh, a bit more insights for you when we come back to them. But we should move on to our second drink because we are running out of time. And Ben, now I can hear I can hear the whisper of the, the locks. The whisper, yes, and the kids on the boat shouting yeah, randomly, going nuts. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> destroy the tranquility of the boating community. You should, um, you should feed them some cake, Ben, which is highly appropriate because our second person we're going to recognise this month, this week, is Marie Antoinette, who was born Ooh. in 1755 on the 2nd of November, famously said to the peasants, let them eat cake. No, she didn't. She didn't say that, did no. she? No, it's one of the many myths around Marie Antoinette. She didn't ever say that. It's an English mistranslation. It was actually an anecdote written by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Rousseau, Rousseau. Rousseau uh, in his well-known confessions. She didn't say that. He said, let them eat brioche, which isn't a cake, as we all know. That's just a, just shit sweet bread. Um, but I like a brioche. I like a burger with a brioche. Doesn't, doesn't, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, again, talking it's about soft. The, it's quite when, when you've got oh, the uh, succulent bit of beef and then the soft doughy brioche, it's quite nice. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not so much a fan. Bread is bread. And obviously, the, it's Mary Antoinette and all this time in history, the bread riots and uh, bread's very important to the French. 
Anyway, she didn't say it. Uh, no. There's lots of things that are said about her that are not true. Uh, she wasn't even French. People think she was French. She was born in Austria. One of the other massive mistruths is the fact that champagne coupes are based on the contours of her breasts. No A lot of people believe this to be true, um, and I'm sure it will uh, provide a little titter when you're Very enjoying uh, a glass of champagne in, in a coupe. But uh, you've got to actually think about... It, they, it's the coupe, not the flute, I take. No, the coupe. Obviously, the flute would be a oh. rather unusual shape to the breast. Um, yeah. uh, but even the coupe is quite an unusual one, if you think about it. First of all, would she really have exposed herself, her boobies, to a glass blower? But they've got stems on them, haven't got, they? Got, yeah, I've never... I mean, I like to think I've been a free spirit when it comes to the ladies but i've never seen boobs with stems on it not even on the internet nor i um and i've looked yeah we've we done our research around. not in a sort of sexual staring way like on the tube now no. that's not allowed but with permission i've looked and uh, never seen never seen nipples that have extended in a thin long no. line before the opening um, up and having some kind of engraving stating where they're made and what yeah, and their dishwasher proofing <laughs> that has not happened to me. So they, the, 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 but what is interesting is that even though it's not true, there are some links to this story. The idea of that cup shape being based on the cup of a booby. So it's not entirely. While all the other mistruths have been stretched, this one is. It does have a hint of fact about it because in 1787 Jean-Jacques Longrier Le Jeune Jean-Jacques yeah they um they really were given access to uh Marie Antoinette's personal space and actually did design a cup around her boobies so there is there is historical foundation for this mistruth uh, the bolse or the jatte Teton, which literally trans, which translates literally to nipple bowl. Nipple bowl, yeah. Jacques Teton is a nipple bowl. So, um, Mar and Marie really did use these bowls for drinking, but it wasn't for champagne. She was drinking them for uh, milk. Um, from, oh, from, uh, from the royal dairy. So there is a link and. There's more, Ben. There's more because the ancient Greeks drank wine from a booby-shaped vessel called a mastos. Oh, cup. ah, mastos is Greek for breast. Yeah, because they were indeed based on said shape. They were even complete because they had a nipple at the bottom. At the bottom of the glass. At the bottom of the cup. They were. Uh, oh yeah, they did more like more like bowls than than champagne well, why would they have a nipple at the bottom just because they were a tribute to lady bits so oh, I see. they were actually designed in honor of um the, you know the greeks were pretty good at accurate depictions of the human form as you'll notice from all the statues of the males they have a more appropriate sized penis to yeah. one you might might design if you were trying to impress upon ladies that you had a huge member None of the Greek statues have. No, people. that's why I love the Greeks. Yeah, they were accurate. About myself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, if you lie. think about the beer bottle, that's quite phallic, isn't it? When you and 
and all even the champagne bottles. I mean, look at the Formula One drivers that when they win and they they squirt their champagne bottles everywhere. I mean, that I mean, you don't have to be Freud to work out that mm. that's that's quite sexual. And then you've also got picking at the label of a beer bottle or seeing the sexual frustration. Yeah. Um. I mean, you, you could probably read a lot that's into just it. Fiddling. That's just fiddling. That's why they. That's why the if any of you've got those uh, kids have got those fidget toys, fidget they're things. pretty useful. I use them all the time. Um, what to do? What to to quell your? Just because pressure. I'm, yeah, just need to fidget really. Yeah, uh, could be a label of the. And you also got you also in Antwerp, the the conic glass is called a bollock, mm. isn't it? I mean, it's not shaped like a bollock. Well, if it is shaped like a bollock, you need to go to the doctor because it's it's know. sort of bulbous and comes in at the top and then goes out at the top. Yeah, I think my bollocks would fit into it now. They're nice and distended. Yeah, just sort of fit in like a. <laughs> Just a couple of clock almost, you know, just like a lava lamp. Yeah. So uh, there we go, Marie Antoinette. There's a. The, the, she's got our knockers, but we oh, like she's her. got our knockers, but we like her. But I mean, obviously, there's a lot. It's a bit disappointing, really, isn't it? When you've got such a female icon as this, that her legacy is so dirtied with with mistruths, but also that we should really be focusing on the fact that there's glassware shaped like her boobies. She well, did a lot it's more. Not true. Yeah, but she did a lot more. She had a, a legacy that should go beyond glassware shaped like jubblies for her bubbly. Um, but it does go to show the entry into the history books is far from booze-related booby bobbins. But what are you going to drink with it? Well, you must drink champagne. Champagne. Which, champagne. champagne. An easy one for us to, to, to work on for the weekend. Everyone likes a glass of champagne, although I, I don't like it as much as some other sparkling wines. For those who would like to know a little bit about champagne, uh, obviously it's produced in France. Most countries restrict the use of the term champagne to sparkling wines produced in the Champagne region of France. So in Europe, it is actually enforced. So when you're drinking champagne, it has only come from that region. Uh, the European Union, <laughs> the old European, European Union, um, but it's got protected designation of origin status under the European Union um, because obviously in, in Europe you have lots of different uh, sparkling wines, Prosecco from Italy, Carver, Spain, and Sect from uh, the Germans. Uh, so everyone has their own little little sparkling addition to the we've calendar. Got, we've got British. Um... British well, sparkling wine. Aren't we? We've got English sparkling wine, but the Welsh are coming up with their own designation. They are. Um, so it's it's happening all over the place. I'm sure <laughs> English sparkling wine. Balls, haven't they? But they have. They have. Um, so uh, there are lots of different styles of champagne. If you're looking to buy some this weekend, then we have Brut Nature, which has got Brut Nature. little or no sugar, extra brut, slightly sweeter. Um, it's got about six grams of sugar added per litre. Brute, which is what most of us tend to go for because it's a little step up in terms of the price scale. Shows you care a bit. If you're going to turn up at a celebration with a bottle, you're probably going to spend more like 25 to 50 quid on a bottle of Brute. Still quite a dry champagne. They got about 12 grams of sugar per litre in Brute. So that's the most popular style. And then you can go into extra dry, extra sec, extra seco, demi sec, du sweet dulce. There's loads of loads of loads of different other variations. But you stick with the uh, you stick with a brew. How many bubbles do you reckon in a bottle of champagne, Tom? Uh, there are we. I know this, but why don't you tell the twenty million bubbles? 
and a bottle mm. of champagne. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. Imagine who counted that? Some fridge. Very bored human. Yeah, um, I mean, I I like a bit of champagne, but I'm still I I'm we've been having some English sparkling wine, and that is good, but it's still very expensive. It is expensive for what what you get. It does. I mean, it's quite difficult to make it. So I, I suppose uh, you, you, that you've got to take that into consideration. Um, and then, but there's a lot of marketing around it, which has allowed them to the, the fact that it's used in a celebr. It's integrally linked to celebratory moments. So the fact is, you think you're making, you're buying it for a special occasion, means people are prepared to just spend that little bit extra on something like it. That's champagne, doesn't it? So I suppose that's one of the reasons. I mean, the bubbles are obviously what it's famous for, but it, it's also famous champagne, particularly for being quite citrusy, almondy, apple-y, um, quite dry. Uh, so it's quite a specific drinking moment, isn't it, as well? It kind of it owns its own space in the drinks cabinet. Um, we're going to suggest Bollinger this weekend, if you are going to go for any. Uh, one of the last independent champagne houses. Bollinger is... Um, a great, a great champagne house has been going since 1829. So they've got plenty of heritage there and their, uh, their Bollinger cuvées and their cuvée Brut is held up as one of the sort of typically best of the, the style. Um, and so if you're going to go for one, go for Bollinger. I've actually been to the Bollinger vineyards and uh, I went there with my wife. We did a little bit of a tour de France um, in a car. And we stopped in the Champagne region and stayed in a lovely bed and breakfast and went and had a picnic in the Bollinger Vineyards. Um, beautiful evening picnic where we shared a bottle of champagne. Romantic. It was romantic. Put a picnic rug down and uh, it, it had some uh, fromage, a pain, a saucisson. Saucisson. Did you did you have any saucisson? No, we didn't, actually. We were pretty respectful of our environment. It was in the pub public... Uh, there wasn't anyone yeah, around. Yeah, I mean, it would be pretty out of order to have sexy time in a uh, champagne. I would have said, I don't know. I would have said so personally, yeah. but that didn't stop other people. As we rolled up the picnic rug, I had to uh, kick off a used condom from the bottom side <laughs> of the fridge. I mean, <laughs> filthy, filthy bastards. What an awful bunch they are. Yeah. Uh, so that was my Bollinger experience. But well, uh, did you know that you know, there's a rumor going around the internet that there more people are killed by flying champagne corks than poisonous spiders every year? That yeah. is bullshit. I'm going to call bullshit on that. Yeah, because um, the average champagne cork flies at about 25 miles an hour. If you hit by a car at 25 miles an hour, you'd probably survive. There we go. So that's it. Drink champagne uh, or drink champagne. American whiskey. Or drink a lovely cocktail. So there we are. Three suggestions this week, you lucky, lucky people. And yep. that brings us to the end of our drink section and on to marketing other guff. So we yeah, are now right. going to be on In fact, tour. if you're going to listen to one bit of this podcast, this is it. So yeah, where are we off to? We're, we're having a we've we've got a weekend off from the show because we're on half term. Yeah. Uh, we were in Barnsley last week and Selby. Big up Barnsley Massive. Yeah, so we they were very um, nice folk. Really good shows, weren't they? Great fun. They really good. We were drinking some of the local beers there. I had some Acorn yeah. Pale Ale. In Went into old number seven in Barnsley seven. on the recommend- recommendation of Pete Brown. Thanks for lovely. that. Lovely boozer. Um, um, Barnsley on a Saturday night's pretty lively, isn't it, man? 
Yeah, I'm not sure. We we decided to go for a curry and not partake in the excessive drinking. Drink less, drink better. But now we'll be back on tour on the 4th of November. We'll be in Wickham. If you haven't bought tickets and you live in Wickham, buy tickets. Come and see us. We're going down to Farnham, the Hogsback Brewery, Worcester, Bristol on the 18th of November is selling very well. Hen and Chickens. And we always do well there. It is the same same show going back. We've done it there once before. But it'll be the pub quiz again. And then the Isle of Wight. Uh, I'm not sure if the podcast is reaching across the waves to the international <laughs> community. But the Isle of Wight will be there on the 2nd of... Uh, Cows. Mm-hmm. They're listening too. Yeah. Um, and then... What- My stomping ground. Just a special mention to Wolverhampton. I went to Wolverhampton University. It's why I'm here doing this now. Talking so- about the biggest comebacks of all time. Working in finance. You're going back... <laughs> And uh, uh, my American studies degree is coming in handy as we do this podcast. And uh, yeah, 15th of December there. So come and see us at one of those dates. Subscribe to our podcast, but, uh, but also subscribe to our members club or buy it as a gift for someone for Christmas. There we go. Which is all very exciting. But the most exciting thing that's happened to us this week, before we go, we've got to tell you about this, is we went to a shop in Barnsley called 80s Casual Classics. And it was a sea of sports casual wear from that particular decade. So you got to, to you got your Tachini in there. You got Fila. your Gola, Deodora, Fila. And I bought a, an absolutely mint blue and white Fila dressing gown, the kind of which the sort of thing boxers would wear, but mm. more importantly, was worn by Turkish in the film The Business, starring Danny Dyer. And in this, in the very same film, Danny Dyer wears a really lovely feeler uh, tennis top and some really tight white tennis feeler tennis shorts. And you bought the uh, the very I bought same the tennis top. top. I bought the tennis top, of which I will, if we do ever play again, Ben, I will wear that with some uh, extra tight white shorts, as oh, sported by Danny Dyer. To me. Anyway, but, um, yeah, what's the something. film? And uh, it's a wicked shop. You've got to go there. Yeah. Anyway, that brings us to the my end. Kids, my kids are floating away on a boat. I'm not. That's yeah. not actually a lie. They they seem to have unmoored it. Um, okay. So I better go. All right. Uh, we will see you next. Well, you you will hear us next week. You can see this on YouTube. Go to our Thinking Drinkers YouTube channel. All of these things are on there as well. But until next time, pod listeners, we love you. Drink less, drink better, uh, and enjoy yourself. Yes. Don't do drugs. Bye. Bye.